Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat learning session with TBA rabbinic intern Cheva Lerman. We're going to get started on our study today uh, in Parshat Mishpatim. There are many options of what to do. Many of them have to do with God. I love talking about God, but sometimes I also love talking about dog. So um, so we're going to be talking today about this line that comes up really like much of Mishpatim without a clearly evident w- context. We're just going through all these different laws, and then we come upon this one. So you should be a holy people unto me. You must not eat flesh torn by beasts of the field. You shall cast it to the dogs. So the first thing here is, okay, what do these three things have to do with each other, right? And that's the arc of what we're going to cover today. What is the, you shall be a holy people unto me? What is the flesh torn by beasts in the field? And what does it mean you shall cast it to the dogs, these wonderful, beloved, pure-hearted creatures who apparently are getting our unholiest of food? Um, You can tell where my heart sits on dogs. It was my first (laughs) word before we even had one, so like... You don't have to feed kosher dog food to your dog. It's true. Okay, so Abarbanel always asks these great provocative questions, and there's a pretty clear one sitting in this verse. What is the meaning of ve'anshe kodesh tiyunli? And also note the construction of this phrase. So how would your first impressions answer that question, just from what we've seen so far before we get into the other places this sort of language is used in, in Torah? Okay, God wants you to be a holy people, but what does being a holy people mean? Yeah. Yeah. So I'll repeat a few things. If um, if people are comfortable passing the mic back and forth, we can do that. But for those who don't have a mic, I'll repeat. Um, so the things that that we put into us do matter in Judaism, right? Specifically, it it, it changes our insides what what we bring in, um, and we assume or or Brandt assumes, fair to say that that saying "Don't eat the carrion of the field" is probably also a reference to generally keep kosher. Other observations about what is being asked of whom? I think to be a, a holy people is to not Can act. Can you lean into the microphone? Okay. I think to be a holy people is to not act out of basic instinct, like animals act or, or non-thinking people or non-holy people. But if you're a holy person, you think about an action before you take it. So here's an example of, you know, stop. Yes, there may be some food that you might want to eat, but think about it. Is this really something you want to do? Mm-hmm. Yes, that's great. That there's intentionality here and caution. What about this construction, Anshe Kodesh? Is this usually how we see this phrased? Anshe Kedusha. Yeah, people of holiness. Anashim Kedoshim is, yeah, it would be adjectival, right? Holy people. I note that Anashim, is, yeah, Sandra? Yes, it's Michut, yeah. Yeah, so people of holiness and, yeah, Irv? awe and gratitude together. That's beautiful. I also note that, well, you can keep an eye on this as we go through, but very rarely does do we see this phrase, Anshe Kodesh. Usually it's Am Kadosh, mm-hmm. right? We, just like uh, we had in the Torah portion today, like we already spoke about, right? That you should be a holy people to me. Uh, and 
And yeah. Right. Individual responsibility versus a nation and the collective. Right. And so let's hold as we go forward, as we understand other ways to read or quite literal ways to read, do not eat the flesh of beast torn from the field. Why would this be put in a way that seems to be targeted towards individuals rather than towards the community as a whole? When in a sense, kashrut law is something that distinguishes the bounds of community, right? It makes sure that Jews eat together, that Jews support each other in their food systems, that it is really a collective enterprise. And it's very hard to keep kosher in places that don't have a strong Jewish community. Yeah. Our actions, you're walking down the road, and they're hungry. Also, to me, it might be quite tempting. Stop what you're doing and eat it. Yes. And that's an individual, as opposed something that I mean every day doing that is not themselves mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right that it would be an individual's action to go to be tempted by that meat and this yes. is to to preclude that possibility and say don't don't do that but it it, it means to be targeted at the individual yes. because that would be something that one would do without having any eyes on them yes yeah yeah, it's also interesting that you say that around having someone in great need. Um, the commentators pick up on that too. Several of them say this distinguishes the Jewish people from poor people, which is a complicated thing that has a lot of layers to unpack, right? Because we know that the Jewish community has a range of socioeconomic levels in it, but this is how they wanted to imagine Jewish community. And they say only people who are in desperate straits would do something like this and would need a rule prohibiting it. So you're right on point. But I'm not sure in a situation where you're not poor, but you're immediately available to you. True, right. There are many ways in which resources might not be available. I mean, I also think about just being a backpacker, for example, and a bunch of more. This is anachronistic to this time, to this text, but um, you have moments where you're, you're willing to eat almost anything because you're that hungry and there aren't a lot of options out in the wilderness. So let's look at some other uh, moments in which we see this phrase. Am Kadosh or Anshe Kodesh. So we already referenced the one from Parshat Yitro this morning. Um, in Deuteronomy 14, we have another one that says, Ki Am Kadosh Ata Lo Right? You are a people consecrated to your God. You shall not boil a kid in its mother's milk. So another example of Am, Am, Am Kadosh in this case, but that's also around kashrut and eating, right? The next example is also around kashrut and eating. So there is a certain kind of foundation of text supporting this, like this path, this interpretation of this phrase, right? Um, kedoshim ki kadosh ani. So we know that the when God says, I am holy, therefore you shall be holy, that God is saying it in the context of don't eat anything that swarms, don't eat little bugs, right? Don't eat things that might be edible to some people, but it won't be allowed to Jews. But do they all say this? Like, hardly. They're not, this is not a phrase that is exclusively applicable to the laws of Kashrut. Deuteronomy 7, Ki am kadosh atal Aronai Elohecha, Bechar Aronai Elohecha liyot lo la'am segula mikol amim asher al pnei hadamam. So this is just, you are a people consecrated to your God, because God said so, because God chose you. Not a lot of, there's no kashrut here, right? There's no, there's no question of food. And then a few chapters later, it's, it's similar, right? Yakim Aronai lo la'am kadosh, kasher nishbalach, 
So God will establish you as God's holy people. You'll walk in God's ways. So this theory that it's like really about kashrut, it starts to unravel. And then the last example here is, um, is also in the holiness code in the middle of Leviticus. So speak, so this is just the summation of like kind of the essence of the holiness code is saying you shall be holy for I am holy. And holiness is still not explained, right? We don't really know what that is. So we have some ways in which we model and which we live out holiness by our food practices and other ways in which we just are holy, right? In which we embody it by our relationship to God or by God's instruction and direction towards us. So there's a little bit here to work with, right? There's a little, there, there is what in the text, um, but could someone read the Ramban text on our original Pasuk? Because he um, brings us back actually to uh, Brandt's comment early on and, um, and has a different, he, he comes back to what does it mean to have holiness in you? Um, someone perhaps who would be comfortable reading? Uh, if we could pass them the microphone, that would be great. This is Ramban on Exodus 22:30, verse 1. And you shall be holy men unto me. The reason for the expression in this verse is that until now, he mentioned only the ordinances and admonished them about repulsive matters. But now when he's about to begin the law of forbidden food, he prefaced it by saying, and you shall be holy men unto me. For in order to preserve his physical life, man should be able to eat anything which serves that purpose. And the prohibitions concerning certain foods are only a means of guarding the purity of the soul in order that one should eat clean things which do not give rise to harshness and coarseness in the soul. Therefore he said, and you shall be holy men unto me. That is to say, I want you to be holy men so that you will become suitable for me to cleave to me, for I am holy. Therefore, do not defile your souls by eating abominable things. And similarly, he said, you shall not make yourselves detestable with any swarming thing that swarmeth. Neither shall you make yourselves unclean with them, that you should be defiled thereby. For I am the eternal, your God. Sanctify yourselves, therefore, and be you holy, be ye holy, for I am holy. Swarming things thus make the soul detestable, but the trefa is not detestable. However, abstention from eating it adds holiness. Thank okay. you. Brent? This is an detestable. I don't know if I agree, but it's Jews. <coughs> what you have your backpack to be a pay the number of mosquitoes to be <laughs> whatever I was cooking. But you're so guarded in your life that you can't go backpacking, diving into that's where it's. I'm not sure I agree with this, but I know. Follow these rules. It's not our dogma. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm and sure I'm not the only. <laughs> right, that we we do not become purely what we eat, but that there is a sense of uh, of importance and boundaries within reason. Right, like we cannot stop living in order to maintain these boundaries, but uh, we do need to be intentional. Yeah, yes. actually, I'm a lot more comfortable with the verses on the preceding page, where they just say, "Be holy," mm -hmm. without the rituals. Uh, assigned to the holiness, because what you end up getting is, uh, which we find frequently not only among 
religious Jewish people, but I argue among religious people of many faiths is they fall back on, oh, I do all these things. I don't eat swarming. If a dog, if, if a beast rips something up, I give it to my dog. So I'm observing all these laws. That makes me holy. I prefer when, it, when there's no ritual tied to the holiness. I just theologically much more. I think too many people look at these things and say, well, I, I do all these things that God told me to do, and therefore I'm holy regardless of, which was the humanist part, right? So. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I hear you, Sandra. That it, yes, I know, I love that, and I do want to go into the metaphor, that if, that just to restate what you said for, for the Zoom, that, that when there, that this both speaks to the need to, um, avoid things that will sully the soul in a way, while also uh, um, doing things proactively, right? That we need to have both actions. Am I summarizing you correctly? Yeah. And um, and the combination is what makes one a holy person or us a holy people. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. And so this, so you're in agreement with Ilan that what what makes one holy is not necessarily doing the mitzvot. I think what I hear in both of you is this question of what is cause and what is effect, right? What is the what is the thing that makes one holy versus how does one live that out in the world? And the question there is, well, can you you have innate holiness within you, right? You are a human being and you're a Jew and you you have in you know that you have the spark of the divine within you. But if you do nothing to preserve and and like inflame that beautiful spark, does that holiness continue to burn or does it flicker? Rabbi Clickfeld? Just to move the conversation a, a slightly in a different direction, I, I'm moved by one notion in the middle of the Ramban where he basically concedes, at least I hear him conceding, that on some level kashrut is an oddity because you would think that you could make the argument that what should you eat? You should eat the food that will make your body well. And he's saying that, well, you could make that argument in our tradition, you also need to eat food that makes your spirit and your soul well. And our version of that is kashrut. Um, and that, that the ancient Jewish practice really should have been fusing food that actually makes your body fit to be a temple for the Holy One. And because of the particular rules that came down, make your soul and spirit fit. Um, I, I happen to be very... Um, very down on modern kashrut, not not the individual Jews' observance of it, but the industrialization of it. Mm-hmm. And I find it actually, and I'm going to use this word intentional, detestable, that I think we're actually falling down on both uh, uh, marks and that we throw hexers on all sorts of food that wouldn't pass the Ramban's test of, is this good for your body? But a rabbi has established it. And there are so many things that are happening, even and especially in the world of Kashu, that wouldn't pass his second test about whether or not the way that the food has uh, earned that heksher is actually right for a soul who's trying to aspire. So I, I would find on some level um, the notion of Kashu much more compelling if we were doing it in a Rambanian way. And in obviously I'm still committed to Kashu. I'm not saying we shouldn't observe Kashu, but I'm saying that it's troubling that in and this is this is a, a wider troubling thing with you know food.inc in general, that I think we are failing both of the tests for why eating uh, uh, observing the laws of Kashut were originally part of the system. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't thought about it until he conceded, yeah, eat food that helps your body. Well, again, we we 
we permit pen, plenty of foods in our tradition that are not at all good for our bodies. Right, right. and the, you know, we've you've spoken before, and we've spoken about how certain aspects of halacha, like you choose to follow it because you're committed to the system, not because that specific thing makes sense. Mm-hmm. But then when you see the system leading you in a direction that you also don't have faith is, is the good faith effort and the right direction, like at what point do you hold the agency to say, I'm going to change this part of the system for myself, or I want my community to change this part of the system for us together? One more sentence. Well before I stopped eating meat in my former congregation, a member of my community is very committed to Kashu, but also very committed to ethics, asked, asked me for a good explanation this is right when the Postville stuff was happening and some of the debacles happening both to animals and to workers in the agro-processors plant in Iowa was happening. Like, explain to me why the highest form of Jewish eating should be um, a, a, a rubashkin hechshered chicken and not an ethically raised, ethically slaughtered chicken that doesn't have ashkacha. And I didn't have a great answer aside from, well, kashrut, right, the halacha. And it was a really healthy and important challenge that I think that the modern Jewish community hasn't really yet um, confronted properly. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Right. Rabbi Rabbi Berenbaum, I see your hand, and we only have a few minutes left. Can you pass the microphone if you're comfortable with that? Go back to uh, holiness is achieved by something, and um, reframing refraining from adds to that aspect of holiness. And doing certain things adds to the aspect. And I always regarded Kedoshim Tiyuki, Kedoshim you know, you shall be holy because I, it, it, it's essentially as a summation after details. And I find um, in a lot of work that I see, people know every leaf on every tree. They sometimes do not see the forest. And what this is reminding us in one sense what the goal is, what the forest is, as the higher thing that we have to aspire to. It's then detailing, and part of the detailing is reframing from doing certain things. And I have to say that that I studied how people ate in them, and let me give two examples, because um, one of the things that um, very often happens when you do an interview some survivors, it happens occasionally, is they will say, shut off the camera, and then they will talk about the... The moment they saw cannibalism. They will talk, saw the moment in which they saw cannibalism. So the question is, restraint from, and I just wrote uh, a forward to a, a, a survivor's memoir in which he had the most honest single uh, sentence that verified for me the integrity of the entire thing. He said, my best friend was Ernesto. We did everything together. We did everything for each other. And I'm deeply grateful the situation did not get that bad that I stole Ernesto. And the question becomes, again, what are the limits to desperation, the elements that you reframe from? And that becomes an important thing. And the other thing I have to say is that uh, I don't know how many of you have traveled to China. But uh, we traveled to China, spent the, uh, the better part of it. We found a very interesting thing. We only ate in um, um, Buddhist restaurants mm-hmm. because it's the only, the only place you could get anything roughly resembling uh, kosher. And we found that as time went on, all of the people we were traveling ate with us in Buddhist restaurants <laughs> because if it moved, they cooked it in China. 
And it became uh, an interesting thing how people could not, at least Western people, could not do that. And they switched over uh, uh, to the Buddhist restaurants because at least that had a semblance of it. Uh, and there's a, a sense in which for at least Western sensibility, this eating like that was, to, and it became intriguing to see it over over a long period, uh, a long period of time. Mm. Anything that moved, they served. They didn't know what they were having. They didn't know if they mixed in with the rice. They didn't, they, they didn't know if they were having rabbits. They didn't know if they were having rats. They didn't know if they were yeah. having grasshoppers. They didn't know what what the hell it was. Protein. Yeah. So I, we do need to wrap up in a moment, um, but. Going off of this idea that um, that these things that are that when you get to the point of of being tempted to eat carrion, you're cross, you're crossing a boundary, right, and into a place of something that is detestable, and that that thing that is detestable, that's what you should give to dogs, right? Because dogs in this moment are cast as the creature that has no boundary, right? The creature that has no discrimination between what is holy and what is not holy to consume. Because of this, um, Rashi compares dogs to Gentiles, and it's, it's a fraught and unpleasant thing to read. But the essence of what he is saying is that, you know, there are people in the world who don't discriminate between one set of food and another, right? There are people in the world who make no distinction. There are Jews nowadays who make no distinction too, but like, you know, in his system, he's saying that some people don't distinguish and that there is a place for that in the world, in a sense, right? Like there is, there is a place, this is me expanding off of Rashi. Rashi does not approve of any of this, but the fact that the text names that there is another place to which to send this food that we do not eat implies that there is more space in the world than just us and just our system. So mm -hmm. um, we're going to skip the last three texts on the last page. These are all the, the, um, <laughs> the Exodus 11 is the other, the only other place in Torah where you see a dog get mentioned. Uh, it's in a very different context. And in, I, I just wanted to include as, as a little love letter of gratitude to the dogs that do eat whatever we give them, um, that Rav Asi said, do not live in a city where horses do not neigh and dogs do not bark. Steinsalt says it's because they should provide security and protection. They'll be the alarm system when someone comes into town. I say it's because may we all live in places with horses and dogs. Yeah. So, but um, remember, dogs play a very important role in halakha. Yeah. They are the way in which we identify if something actually is, is a food. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.